Once the very spirit of anarchy, the Goon Show is now a respectable antique. It's practically part of the National Trust. And today the Goons reassemble in honour of the BBC's 50th anniversary and are to be heard at 8 o'clock tonight on Radio 4. To coincide with this nostalgic revival, Mr Michael Coveney of Ramsgate has formed a society for the preservation of the Goon Show, rather as though it really were an interesting piece of architecture threatened with demolition. He explained to Malcolm Billings. The idea it really is to keep alive the interest which at the moment is at a terrifically high level um, in the Goon Show and uh, to, to try and keep that alive in the years ahead. Well, now, what would your Goon Show Preservation Society actually do? One of the big things we're anxious to do is to make sure that all the existing recordings uh, and tapes that are available, both at the BBC and I believe there are in existence some uh, privately owned, uh, we want to make sure that these don't get um, lost in the way that early films did, great masterpieces were lost and we feel these are masterpieces and we want them to be preserved for future generations. How many members have you got up to date? Well at the moment we've, we've got about two dozen in, in uh, my own area uh, but if I was to get at the thing on a, a properly organised basis we, we could soon go right up I think. You could see it as a, a national movement? Oh rather, yes, yes. <laughs> Let's jump straight in. My guest this week is Chris Smith, uh, one of the leading lights of the Goon Show Preservation Society. And Chris came along to talk to me all about the history of that august institution. So thank you for joining me, Chris. It's a pleasure. And you've joined me to talk about the history of the Goon Show Preservation Society, of which you were a very active member. You were much more active, I gather, previously, because you were the editor of the newsletter for many, many years. Yes, yes. I had two cracks at that. I was involved on the society from 74. Mm. So almost almost the very beginnings of it, although I didn't quite realise that at the time. I picked up the society from publicity in the second book of Gucho scripts. Okay. Because mm-hmm. it was the reading of the scripts that, with a friend that brought me into this goonish type of humor and yeah. discovered the goon show recordings after the scripts funnily enough a few people have said that yeah a few people have said. do you mind me asking were you a teenager at this point i was very much a teenager a young teenager okay. um we actually set a friend of mine set about trying to reenact one of these things without ever hearing a goon show recording which was quite a fun challenge <laughs> not most not many of the voices passed muster i have to say Okay, so let me ask you then, because your parents obviously would have heard the goons. Um, did your father, did your mother <clears throat> give you any kind of guidance in terms of how the characters sounded, like Eccles or anything like that? I'm afraid, no, no. I'm not sure that, that that's that's a reasonable assumption, but not the case in my, oh, right. my story. 
Um, I discovered the goons through my friend. I think possibly his parents may have twigged onto that. I never actually talked to them. But because I became enthusiastic about this uh, humour with, with, with my friend Mark, they mm. bought me a copy of the scripts. I don't, and, and their reaction since was they didn't quite realise what they were letting themselves in for okay. <laughs> over the years yeah. that followed. Um, the nearest we got to actually what the characters sound, char- what the show sounded like, was a recording of Sunday Light Night at the London Palladium, which was hosted by Bruce Forsyth, of course. Yeah. And they included a spot for the Ray Ellington Quartet. Okay. Yep. So we heard, we knew what that was like. But as far as the other voices were concerned, we had no idea. Um, so you knew what Gabriel Ellington sounded like before you knew what the, the actual goons sounded yeah, like. Obviously, absolutely. the characters yeah. in any case. Yeah, well, the mischief of it. The only clue you got was from the kind of conversation that the characters had. You built up mm. an idea for the characters from the dialogue itself. Um, so you got... I got a fairly good idea about Seagoon being a fairly loud OTT kind of character, just from the, the kind of situations that he ended up in and his reactions to them. And that, that's a fairly close link to rendering the uncopyable voice of Harry Seacombe. Uh, I was able to make a fairly good pass at that, although I couldn't actually admit it in front of Harry when I did get to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> I do a good impression of you, Harry. I thought, oh, really? Oh, <laughs> give, it was pretty good. Give it's us a give, good. Us, give us a shot then. You know, he's eighteen stone, and I'm a eleven stone shadow. So the, <laughs> you know, the um, the vibe, the um, speaker system wasn't going to be quite as powerful. But that carried through later on in um, the history of part of the society when they actually came to doing national shows. But that's getting ahead of myself a little bit. Uh, that was the that was the early start. The scripts. Discovered the society through the publicity in the second book of scripts. Contacted Mike Coveney down in Ramsgate, which yep. he was the secretary at the time, still with us. Um, and his address was the base for a torrent of co- correspondence over the next five or six or seven years. Um, I'm still in touch with Mike. I went down to... Um, Check on, say hello to him recently. He's ninety. I saw. I he's how old? How old is he? Ninety. Blimey, yeah. Because I saw in um, <clears throat> one of the news that one of the magazines last year um, saw a photo of you with Mike. Uh, so, so let me get this right. So, you joined the GSPS before you'd actually listened to a goon show. Yes. Wow. I, I got my first goon shows from Mike once he discovered that the society was making them available clandestinely. Mm. I mean, these these were the years before many recordings were commercially released by the BBC. Mm-hmm. And the only way people could get to hear these things was from off-air recordings made overseas and, and leached, filtered back to the UK. So it was as reasonable a way of doing things as was imaginable in those days. I met, the next, the next thing for, as far as my story was concerned, was meeting Bill Horseman, the steam count. Because mm-hmm. he's well known to uh, posterity. Mm. Um, one thing that you found from those beginnings around a society very much was that people v- voiced the idea, wouldn't it be a good idea to get a group of people together and just have a have a laugh with uh, recordings of the show? 
apart from the fact that it wasn't so easy to get hold of the, the shows at the time. But nevertheless, meet some kind of ideas of local guys getting together and meeting up. Back then, way, way, way back then, it was quite difficult to know actually where other people were unless you were the guy at the centre of the society with the list of names. Uh, yeah. no, in, no internet, no research facilities possible. So people were in the vicinity of each other without necessarily realising it. Um, Mike gave me Bill's name and address and suggested there might be uh, it might be worth teaming up together. So I wrote him way back in it was not, it would be it would be fairly early on seventy five end of nineteen seventy five something like that dear sir dear Mr Horseman. Yeah, Mike, yeah. Mike Coveney has sent me your address details as being interested in the goons and wondered if you might be interested in getting in touch. A very polite, very short, very cautious teenage boy letter. <laughs> and I, yeah. and I got, the letter came back in the post, which I opened up, which was a screed of about three pages. Started, great steaming legs. What's this? A great creed occur, an SOS from the buddies? Oh. It was, it was, it was, oh, it was pure blood, pure blood knock. All the way yeah. through, it was it was brilliant. I thought this guy is on the wavelength, and with phone numbers there, we exchanged. I got in touch with him. The phone bill went up horrendously, um, and it was great. It was a real sparking off. We were very much on the same wavelength, and things started moving on from there because he inspired me, just just by being so on the ball, goonish. Um, and from then I was encouraged to make things known with, uh, friends at school and about the society, this kind of humor, Spike Milligan, the overlap with Monty Python was then quite powerful. Yes. Because Milligan, Milligan's humor very much connects with Python. So I ended up recruiting about a dozen at least a dozen of our friend my friends into Whoa. the society and all of a sudden you had a a huge statistical aberration there was like this this cancerous growth in hartlepool of members you know of, of, of a, a significant amount but it gave so, so it's like a, like a chapter of the society yeah uh yeah. In, a, in a way and very likely the very first of such particularly when we started hearing about events that the other events that were being organized in the society, it was all down in London, inevitably, because it needs somewhere central where people could easily come in to meet. And the most obvious starting point was somewhere based around London, a pub called the Green Coat Boy, I think it was. And yeah. so that's where the fun would be. I think they had a couple of London meetings first before they risked trying to invite Spike. But it was 250 miles away. Mm. And uh, when you're a teenager, you don't necessarily have the resources and money to get to London or to know how to navigate London safely. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different world. So sure. it, was, it was much easier to moot the to fly the kite, to moot the idea of actually saying, well, why don't we try doing something here? It could easily have fallen flat and been something very lame and tame. Uh, just a few blokes meeting together. It's like, oh, hello, how are you? Oh, this is, this is good. So, yes, oh, it was very nice, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and not much else would happen. But because we were kids and we were all dis 
we were all into different disciplines, I re suddenly realized, hang on a minute, I've got a technician, I've got a musician, I've got singers with good vocal range, I've got the steam count. We've got enough idiots here to actually attempt to put on a show and make something of it. Another guy was a radio DJ, so he had the voice and the kit. Uh, he had a mini studio in his own house. So mm -hmm. all of a sudden we discovered that we had the expertise to actually try and put on a highly enthusiastic um, event rather than just do something quietly in the corner of a pub. So, so what year would this have been? That would have been 1978. <clears throat> and presumably by this point, you've actually listened to some goon shows. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was the part of the fun of the, the first time around was we say, let's get together and see what we talk about this and think what we can do. We actually yeah. wrote our own script, but it was always like an, it was like a Saturday evening out, except it would be at somebody's house. And you'd, Talk about ideas. Well, what could we do? So writing a goon show by committee is the exact opposite of what Spike did. Yeah. But um, that meant that it was a very slow process. But you had a lot of laughs on the way, toying with ideas and jokes that wouldn't necessarily go very far. But you had a lot of fun trying. And in the midst of that, you'd stop about halfway through. Right, let's put a proper goon show on. And you just stop and have a listen it through. These things are still fairly new. It's not easy to hear the shows still. So mm -hmm. it was a novelty in itself. It was a it was a feature in itself of the evening. And then it would inspire you to go on and maybe do a bit more before the evening ran down. Sure. So we had about eight or ten Saturdays of hijinks and laugh before we ever got something together, which could be the basis of a project for a, a, an evening's performance or daring to stand up and pre present ourselves. It worked really well. So you staged this Yeah, we staged it. We, we, we rented uh, a room at the local hotel in Hartlepool, the Grand Hotel. It was fairly grand. Yeah. Um, although we put out a lot of... Um, messages to lo local members as much as I think it was about 30. Uh, mm. There was very few people actually came into Hartlepool. I mean, who can blame them? I mean, Hartlepool is not the <laughs> biggest place on the map as a venue. And logistically, it was probably quite difficult to get in unless you had your own car. But the enthusiasm was there, sticking posters up in libraries, hand drew these things and stuck them in three or four different places, hoping it might describe some attention. It never did, but you never know until you try. I think a radio researcher came down from New Radio Newcastle uh, oh, right. and uh, talked to us. I don't remember being interviewed for a radio broadcast. I don't think the Count ever told me that happened. But certainly media were having a passing interest, at least. Okay. So and so what form what's form did this, this evening take? Was it okay. staging a goon show or was it a mixture of that and other It was things? a mix. It was, again, it was put in, what kind of program could you put together? And what did we have? What did we know was available? Um, so we had basically an evening of showing a couple of telegoons, oh, which right. we which we rent. We dis the bill discovered um, a rental company that was still. I mean, this, again, it's in the mid seventies. Sixteen millimeter film is a live medium, and 
these things were being rented by film societies around the country uh, through local local businesses. So he tracked down one where the telegoons were available, mm-hmm. uh, hired a couple. Uh, so that was a good 40 minutes, 40, 45 minutes of the program. Um, a break for the bar, of course. Um, and then after that, the performance of a full-on homegrown goon show with voice, voice performers, PA, sound effects, live sound effects and recorded ground sound effects and the musicians. We had wow. a we had a full band called with nicknamed the Sydney Gentle Acne Trio. They never they never managed to escape the name. Um, <laughs> but this was a guy, a very talented pianist, um, one of my contemporaries at school. He's sort of beyond grade eight. He was playing Scott Joplin and jazz and Oscar mm. Peterson and stuff like that. Mm. So he could put on a very good turn by himself. And because we were at that kind of age. This was all training and practice for going on to do other stuff in each individual career that we went on to. He ended up doing music performances and working in Sky TV. So he's done he's done very well for himself. But for three or four years, every year, the Sydney Gentle Acne Trio would come back to do a, a couple of spot numbers, sometimes straight and sometimes comedy numbers. Something or other, I couldn't hear a thing myself. <laughs> the Sahara Desert Lifeboat, Part Three. I just want to scroll back slightly because yeah. you you joined, as you said, in '74, but yes, the, go, the go, society go. came about in '72. Yes, and Mike Mike, Mike Coveney was I, he was in, interviewed on the Today program even. Yes, uh, and and in, uh, advertised in Private Eye, and I guess. Um, through through like you say through advertising in the likes of the Goon Show scripts or more Goon Show scripts, gradually people came on board, members came on board. But originally, initially, all it was was just what two pages of a newsletter, really. Very basic. Um, mm. I think the very f- the first ones might even have been photocopied until Mike get hold of um, a duplicating machine. Uh, mm. It was amazing. Um, how things just uh, developed. I mean, Mike must have been going steadily on, on and on and on without any much escape from the different aspects of what was involved in setting the society up, getting it publicised, keeping in touch, sparking ideas to try and get it going again. He sustained that confidently for the first seven or eight years before I think he started to get burnout on it. Because he was, he, if acquired one uh, Ronio Gestetner duplicator, which lived in the attic of his house, he turned the attic into a Guncho office. And mm-hmm. um, around about the, by the time that I was helping him with the newsletter, when Mike did ask me, um, they were pumping out about 750, 800 copies of this thing on A4 duplicated paper. So that's a huge workload to get that yeah. lot. To de- devise it, print it, collate it, post it, and I don't think he had any help apart from members of his immediate family. 
so his, his tr- contribution, his achievement was quite tremendous. Again, it comes down to that thing of you don't necessarily know if there are members nearby who are able or willing to help, but history would indicate that there weren't many people that close or able to pile in. It was one of the things I tried to do a little bit later on, a, a bit differently uh, when we were working with the thing. But Mike did a huge amount for those six or seven years. And then after that, he tried to start pulling back. That was when he started looking for people to help with the publication of the newsletter. Mm. Uh, there was a guy who took over first called Steve Gosspage. Um, and he produced two or three, not very many newsletters before he, he, he went down with his ship. He sort of sank, <laughs> he kind of sank without trace. Um, I don't think anybody said we've been able to get in touch with him unless he's changed his name to preserve his anonymity. But then Mike approached me if asked me if I would help um, on that. And I said, yes, certainly. Uh, I was willing to give that a go. There will be people listening to this who who maybe aren't members of the GSPS. I'm sure there's plenty that aren't members. And, and why not? Certainly. Why not? Um, but I do have a, a, a facsimile of the first ever GSPS newsletter from... yes. November 1972. Yes. And it, it is it is one piece of paper, two sides printed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it certainly looks photocopied. And um, I just want to quickly just run through what's what, what it features. You've got um, an introduction from the chairman, Linton Culver. Yes. I believe um, he's still extant as well. All uh, right. Okay. okay. Uh, Linton will be about the nearest... Um, partner in crime that uh, was a, was um, nearby but they were they were good friends that's how he ended okay. up being chairman and the the whole thing about the very very beginning of the society was they didn't expect it to last didn't know how long it would actually keep going or what yeah. the level of interest would be so the first e- e- edition being a single page as well are we going to need much more than this i mean what what else are we going to be expected to do what could we bring to it they're, they're making it up as they go along it's funny though isn't it you think about it it was triggered, my understanding is, correct me if I'm wrong, that all this was triggered by the last goon show of all. Correct, yes. And if the, if the last goon show of all hadn't happened, then arguably there may not have been a goon show preservation society. No, um, that's right. An interest in the goons may well have faded away totally. Or maybe it, not totally, but, you know, it, it, it's, I would say the last goon show of all was a huge shot in the arm. Oh, yes, without doubt. Um the platform was so immense. The BBC 50th anniversary. Um, yeah. It was so that the show was transmitted. BBC One. Anybody who had ever been fond of the old goon shows and lost track of it all. Again, early days in dissemination of recordings. Might be the first they'd heard of it for a lot of time. And the first activities of the society indicated that was very much the case because a big part of those first newsletters was the news that we have tracked down recordings of more goon shows. And very slowly, yeah. they began to pick up um, a, a comprehensive list of recordings that had been taken off air and tried to pe- make sense of them, to put, to put them together. And in, in the, again, in the years just before or at the time that the Goon Show Companion itself was published, Mm-hmm. So these guys were were, were working in, in the dark. Yeah, in the dark. Yeah. Um, there was, incidentally, Charlie, I don't know if there's another point to mention this, there was a society before the GSPS. Oh. Um, it was called the Goonist Movement. 
I mean, whether they heard of that or not. Rings a bell. Rings a vague bell. It's a, well, the, the information about the movement is equally vague. Um, it was running in the fifties. Yeah, we know that. Yeah, we also know. I think the lady who was in charge it was Laura. Her first name is mentioned. They were in touch with the goons, and the goons knew them. Knew the mm. knew the movement, or so they were aware that it existed. Um, we've never really been able to track down uh, much more information. We got one copy of one of their newsletters, which was loaned, and then they requested it be sent back. Um, but that particular person that had the magazine was never could never really afford much more information about what they actually got up to. Although, of course, if you're a movement in the 50s, you go to see the goon shows. So. Yeah. I mean, if you get there and you see the goons and you've heard the goon show and you've seen it, there's maybe not an awful lot more that you want to put into your own publication, except maybe where the goons are going to appear in theatre next. Mm. So it that it, it it was more like a groupies fanzine kind of thing, with the, like following an, an active pop group than than anything deeper. Yeah. I think I'm sure I'm sure I read uh, like a fifties newspaper article magazine article probably reproduced in one of the gsps newsletters i'm sure i read about the gunas movement in one of those in yeah. some some passing reference anyway yeah 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 um, i did a bit of detective work on it and asked mike about it but yeah. the other thing was that i picked the other thing that happened with one reason why it never followed through was that the i think the leading lady died quite young uh spike oh, right. There was a documentary, One Pair of Eyes, on Spike in 1972-73, not long after the last Goon Show of All, where Spike met up with Peter Sellers. and mm -hmm. They were filmed as part of the documentary. And because it was One Pair of Eyes and Spike was just meandering his way through a day and the cameras followed him and they edited together a programme, he mentioned in passing, in conversation to, to Peter Sellers, that this lady, Laura, had died. So... The news obviously reached Spike somehow, so there must have been a link. But equally, if they, she, the main movers and shakers are de deceased early on, that's going to take a lot of the steam out of the system. Um, yeah. Maybe it would have been different otherwise it, if, it, if things had gone differently. But yeah, so it's it's one of those ephemera at the ed at the edge of the the Gooniverse. We never quite managed to track down <laughs> any more about it. But I suppose there's plenty of those kind of threads still. With trying to be tied up well this this first news newsletter it yes. it um it says it refers for a start it refers to the final goon show of all um right uh and it says this newsletter for some readers will be your first contact with us let me assure you that first and foremost we want to keep alive the spirit of the goons mild anarchy good humor sense of fun this really is our prime object so it's setting out its yeah. What would you call it? It's a mission statement, I suppose, yeah. these days you would call it. Yes. Um, and, and, and so you've got this introduction by Linton Culver, the chairman, and then straight under that it says, our next issue, there'll be a review of an excellent new book, The Goon Show Scripts, uh, <laughs> price about £2. I'll £2. buy it. Um, uh, we shall also start the section on tape. Here we want to give and receive news of available tapes, as you said before, and names of members wishing to contact others by means of tape. Um, there's a, a, a mention of a London reunion that they're planning. Uh, and then Mike Coveney has a, a, a little bit where he talks about um, 
writing to Prince Charles. Yes. And apparently Prince Charles responded. Uh, uh, he goes back wish... a long way. He goes back a long way, doesn't he? He does. He does. I'd love to get him on this. Uh, yeah. um, we are sending this newsletter to those who have not yet let us have the annual subscription of... How, how much do you think, Chris? Oh, about 10p, I would guess. Uh, 25p. What? Ah, <laughs> I can afford that. <laughs> Price is just... You're going back so far. Prices were so such strange commodities back then. Oh, mind you, mind you, under eighteen. If you're under eighteen, it's ten p. Ah, that's what I. That's why I was. That's what I was thinking. See, that's all I had to pay. And I sent. I, I sent. I sent nice Mister Coveney a postal order for ten p. What I got at the post <laughs> And and there's a there's a there's a highlighted bit on the end at the end of this newsletter saying goon show playback, goon show playback, goon show playback. Yeah. Um, the, it says your society is most anxious to establish goon groups in various towns uh-huh. where fans can meet and listen yeah. to a playback. Um, uh, a private house if the wife is sympathetic. That's making the assumption that all goon show fans are men, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, better still, a local pub where there's a friendly landlord. Um, we are starting this in Thanet, and local members will be advised separately. So there you go so that's yeah like the, the that, that that was um from a very modest beginning that is uh, from from those loins did the goon show preservation society spring indeed um, indeed and and i've tried because I, obviously i'm a and, and we'll give it a proper plug at the end of the conversation but i i, I have the uh, encyclopedia goonicus which is a magnificent resource um and obviously on that there's every issue of the GSPS newsletter, Stroke Magazine. Yep. Or Goon News, Goon Show News, I should say. Um, and, you know, I've tried my best to to go through every single one, going you know, going all the way back to 72. But it's a big job. It's a oh, big yeah. job. Um, so so it, was, it was really quite a daunting prospect for me to, to go through and try and pick out notable uh, bits, if you like, from the early history. Um. There's a, there's a bit in one of the newsletters saying um, GSPS snubbed by Peter Sellers. Yes. Do you know about this? Yes. Uh, I don't know a huge amount more than was actually mentioned in the in the magazine. There was mm. um, two recorded um, interactions. I don't mean physically audio recording. Two re- reported interactions. Yes. And the one was. Um, a very friendly sort of blood knockish type of reply. Um, me old military fingers delicately removed from the envelope, your invitation. Um, I was unable to be with you apart without, as I distrust everybody and only re- leave my quarters under the protection of Durex or something else. <laughs> so you know, it was very blood knockish. Yeah. Um, so it was a, it was a, it was a blood knockish kind of way of saying no i won't be at this meeting that you've invited me to i mean which, which is hardly a surprise because given sellers celebrity and busyness anyway and his suspicion about people he was very cautious very very cautious about people that he did not know i think yeah. i begin to think about the only people he wasn't cautious about was spike and harry from yeah. from all the various bits and pieces but anyway he said no on that particular occasion but that was a fairly amiable and in character kind of way of letting us down gently at least we got a bit of blood knock out of it but then in a subsequent newsletter mike was reporting on i think the second pink panther film 
Uh, mm. He'd done the original Panther with David Niven in, and then a shot in the dark. Yeah, he started the the winding up of Inspector Dreyfus. Um, but then, and then the third film came back with Panther in the title, and he responded to that along something along. Mike responded along the lines of, "Surely he doesn't need the money." And somehow, this comment found its way back to Peter Sellers. I suppose if Spike was receiving a copy of the newsletter. And I don't know when the goons actually started receiving the newsletters on a regular basis. It was certainly arranged that they would receive all the ones that I produced uh, in um, A5 form. Um, it, possibly from Spike, Peter sent a rather curt telegram back, which the text of which you've probably seen, don't confuse clever criticism with subservient intellectualism. I do not wish... Oh, it was an invitation to be the, an honorary member of the Goonshaw Preservation Society. Yeah, that was the that was mm. the, the prompt. Uh, yeah. He said no in rather definite terms, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. and that was pretty much the end of that. I mean, there weren't never many. I'm sure there weren't very many serious hopes of actually ever getting Peter Sellers along to an event. I mean, Peter, you could get Peter Sellers along to something if you paid him thirty thousand pounds or something like that to be a guest at their party. Um, we had about sixpence and a few stamps in the, in the jam tin, so. <laughs> well, yeah, it was never going to happen, was it? <laughs> if he'd lived another twenty years, though, you never know because he might have softened a little bit, or he might have, you know, Spike might have pers persuaded him to. Yeah, it's true. You know, you never know. You never know. But we'll, we will never know. Um, but it, but the at, at at least, of course, at least you were able to engage with the the surviving three goons. Yes. Yes. How do you like driving the train, then? I, I like driving the train. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're used to it being born in India. Yes, I was long, day, long train journeys across the Deccan Plains, yes. Yeah? I just do this for fun sometimes. Yeah. Not many people know that, <laughs> and I'm one of them. <laughs> you live near here in Rye, don't you? Yes, I have to. My house is there, <laughs> so I, I like to live near it. Yes, yes, I do. Now, I moved in the country because I like it, the peace and quiet of it, yes. And you could say that. Yeah. It's dull, flat and boring, the rump marsh, but there's no place like home. <laughs> it was, in the 16th century, an absolute hive for smugglers. The most famous one was Peter Whitehead. That's right. Yeah. And uh, he used the inventor to... Inventor of the torpedo. Yes. He, he used to deal in cognac and Malmsey, the stuff they killed the, the Duke of Clarence with. Drowned him and, in a bottle. Yes. And there's a wonderful... One of the old place names is worth having. It's called Dumb Woman's Lane. Why is it called Dumb Woman's Lane? There's a well, theory there's a, there's a, a legend, a story, that it was a witch-burning area yeah. where they used to cut their tongues out so that they couldn't cast spells. Yeah. That's all run up, run up an overdraft at a bank. <laughs> I first met Michael Benteen um, up in the northeast, um, where he was... We, we, he was in Newcastle filming a series called Mad About, which is like a magazine program, and he was the uh, the presenter. Mm. And uh, this was in the time when we were doing, we were running the Northeastern Goon Show script meetings. About two years on from the first one in Hartlepool, the next year we upgraded to Newcastle upon time, just reckoning that there was a, a possibly a bigger pool of idiots up there. It was easy, and we were very willing to migrate up to Newcastle, so it was an opportunity to pull more Geordies into the mix. And that started to work quite well. The second year we did that, we put out our normal publicity 
to the local radio stations and the TV stations. We had been getting radio interviews off of that, Radio Tees, in the, uh, obviously in the Teesside area, and also BBC Radio Newcastle took us up on different years. But we also sent to Look North, which was the BBC form, and Northern Life, which was the ITV version. And Northern Life were the people that were filming the series Mad About with Mike Benteen. Mm-hmm. So we got a call from the TV station saying, would you come and do a, a short piece for us about your show, your, 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 your evening on the, on the Northern Life magazine program following the six o'clock news. And we just sort of went, ah, oh my God. And so we, we can't get there. We can't get, don't worry. We'll send a taxi for you and we'll pay for it. What? <laughs> he said, oh, me. So, so good grief. You imagine what the bill would be like after this taxi went around and hoovered up three or four <laughs> idiots all the way back to Newcastle. Um, so we went up there. We took it. We had, we had to cobble together the equipment that we had by then. The group had built their own live sound effects door by then instead of relying on a gramophone recording of it because mm-hmm. that was much more visual and fun thing to have and sort of nicked telephones that you plugged into a transformer and would can sound independently of a phone call. So, you know, the grams, live telephone rings, knock on door, all that kind of thing. We had that there. And we didn't know. We hadn't really twigged because the program hadn't been broadcast yet, of course, that Benteen was in the studios. So they set us up, basically. They got us on stage, live TV, to do a three or four minute presentation. And then said, well, we don't know how the, these voices are any good or whether it's fiction. Who better to ask than Michael Benteen that we just oh, happened to, just happened to have in the corner of the studio hiding. <laughs> <laughs> and they go, oh, hello, hello, and all that kind of thing. So uh, you have no fear when you're 18 or 19 years old, do you? <laughs> no, no. Well, how was that? That's a, a good question, though, because this, this is the late 70s. Yes. Okay. And I'm, I, I'm, I don't know exactly when, because I know there's a couple of, there's, there's what, three episodes from the second series of The Goon Show that exist, which are terrible recordings. Yeah. Um, but by that point, they hadn't been recovered. I mean, you, you won't have heard those Benteen well, shows, I'm guessing. And, and you probably wouldn't have seen Down Among the Zed Men, I'm assuming. So... Um, for you guys, surely Michael Benteen, although you would have known who, who who he was, of course, his relationship with the goons would have been a bit of a, a mystery, I guess, to you in some ways. Would that uh, be fair to say? Yeah, it was the kind of occasion for celebrating what we've been doing yeah. or to asking Michael about it. Or we had we had this kind of idea. We, ex- we executed it by finding this kind of sound effect. What do you think? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, he's the, he was the, 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 the veteran, the... Of, of actually doing it so it, it, the conversations ran just on that basis um so yeah i mean we haven't heard them i have heard them since um because as spike became more trusting of the society and and was more open with us about that kind of thing thought we, we, were, we were genuine and not gonna exploit or be un, unkind or anything he did allow the um, scratchy recordings out. They were his, oh, on, a, they were on his. something called on something called a wire recorder. 
which was the which was the um, predecessor to a tape recorder. So that it's it's range of um, sound was um, more limited than tinny. The recorders do sound tinny. It does sound a lot more like a microphone stuffed in front of loudspeaker kind of recording. Well, who's the next line here? Come on, Timothy, you're supposed to say, oh, I'm not an actor, I'm an announcer. The BBC only allows me to say one line. Well, take that then, go on, start again. Nero! All right, then. What is this dribble, this rubbish, this utter nonsense? This is the BBC Home Service. <laughs> program featuring Peter Sellers, Harry Seacombe, Michael Benteen and Spike Milligan with the Railington Quartet, Max Geldry and the Stargazers. The BBC Dance Orchestra was conducted by Stanley Black, incidental music by Wally Scott. The script was written by Spike Milligan and Larry Stevens and edited by Jimmy Grubb. The program was produced by Dennis Main Wilson. Next week, the Goons present The Merchants of Our Venice, featuring... Good day to you, Mr Shylock. So, okay, so you met Mike, Benteen. Um, what about Spike and Harry? Spike and Harry, well, I, I first narrowly missed Harry by going down. We knew that down to London when I was a little bit older and I had a bit more experience. We heard that Spike Milligan was going to come to a meeting at the Green Coat Boy Pub in London. I mean, mm. about when I was about 18, this is 1978. Um. So I took my courage in both hands with a student young person's rail card or whatever it was I had at that time and went down to London on the first train um, and then came back to London on the last train because they kindly <laughs> count as a day return from Newcastle, Hartlepool to London. So long as yeah. the train left at five to midnight it was the oh, milk, in the day of the milk trains, you know? Yeah. So you could still do it as a day out, but you do that kind of thing when you're when you're like when you're mad like that but it was a great day i managed to sneak into harry seacombe's offices because um, i had a bit of correspondence with him i had the address of uh, his 46 st james's place it was um thought well i'll just go down and say hello um, is there any chance i'm interested i help him with the magazine is there any chance we could have something but of course it's a security locked door mm-hmm. uh major security premises but somebody just happened to be going in with a pass and I slipped in behind them <laughs> um, and then looked around and there was signage for the offices of various entertainers on various floors. Went to, I think it was just up, went up one floor and there was this door with an enormous Sir Harry, it's not a door, Harry Seacombe, and about 600 point lettering from one side of the door to the other. <laughs> There's no doubt which office you were actually going into. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I just took my courage in both hands, knocked on the door, said, hello. <laughs> I couldn't have been less threatening, I think, to the staff. They were saying, who the hell are you? What are you doing here? Get out. Um, but they were very, very nice. They were as nice as members of staff as Harry could have been, as yes. you know, a person meeting people. And, so was, yes. uh, and, and so even after they quickly got past the, what are you doing here? Because I was just wondering, is there any chance of... I said, well, where have you come from? I came from Hartlepool. Today? You poor thing. You want to... 
You must be starving. Here, sit down. Would you like something to eat? Uh, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'd quite like something to eat. Oh, thank you. And then, I'm sorry, Harry's not here because um, this is the this is his business office. He's out on touring about. But so we can't. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But would you like these LPs? Oh yeah, I quite like these LPs. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Gave me three of the BBC LPs. You know, complimentary copies of the things that have been. Oh, of the, of the Goon shows. Yeah, Goon show classics. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Oh yeah, not Harry C, not Harry singing, but the the good shows. <laughs> no. Um, so they were they couldn't have been nicer. Uh, sort of let me down gently for the fact that the uh, the Harry wasn't there, and I went on my way quite happy. And then they hastily reviewed all the security in the building. Bit mm. more idiots like this couldn't get in again, I suppose. But it was just it just one of those you take took a chance and something worked from it. And later on in the evening, Spike made his appearance at the Green Court. Boy, it was about seven o'clock in the evening. He was there for about two hours, chatting and re uh, responding to questions. I asked, uh, they asked him about Q, I asked him about the Goon Show. He was quite happy to field any of those kind of questions at that time. He wasn't uh, prickly about the subject at all, as far as I remember. So yeah. that was, it was absolutely brilliant. But I was very much the youngster in the room. I must have been one of the youngest people there. Mm. Um, the event was reported on by Punch magazine because somebody had come along to uh, check the thing. And it was quite a, actually a, a level-headed uh, review in the Punch magazine. I've still got it somewhere. Um, so it, yeah, here's a bunch of idiots. Here's, the, here's Spike, the, the, the great I am as far as that, and how he was lion, lionized or interrogated or asked by the people that were there. It, it was a, a good-humoured piece of writing. And very much as the evening itself was good, quite good natured. Tonight, Charlotte Mitchell was supposed to come, as, yeah. as you all know. Yeah. And um, can you tell us um, how how you managed to sort of uh, get people like Charlotte Mitchell on? I did He did two shows, and only two. Mm -hmm. uh, he did two shows and seven. Uh, and <laughs> he brought her in because he was having it away with her. And we, we were doing the show, and he's a very consistent man, Peter, and he had the spurred in him. And so if, it had, if it had been a leper that he did love with a leper, we'd like to have a leper in the show. You know? <laughs> it's one of those things. And so she was in the two shows, and then there was a sort of coming in the background. And he so much in love with her that when I put in a line like, Hello there, dull scrubber. He uh, said, I can't say that line about my love. And he can't put the funny show on his own. Uh, so I had to cut out dull scrubber. I, I, I instrumented to dear, divine, delightful lady, I put it. He said that line, and it sounded even funnier. So that, that worked well. That was the first time meeting Spike. Um, it's not something I've made a habit of, you understand. It, it just comes along when there's an opportunity. Um, I think the second second time we came out of the blue because in the 80s I was working in London. You have to fast forward two or three years. Yeah. Uh, Mike had stepped back from being secretary. <clears throat> a lady called Tina Hammond in the, ran things uh, executively uh, in the early 80s. Um, and she had a good link, a good rapport with Spike. And one of the things that she did do, a bit like Mike would have done, was if there were opportunities to get to meet, meet Spike, she'd actually invite people along. And they had a meal at Spike's house 
I don't know if she suggested it or Spike offered it. But um, either way, I got a letter saying we're having this meal with Spike Milligan at his house in Barnet. Would you like to come? Because I was at that point, I was living and working in London. I wasn't oh. active with the society at that time because I was just too busy with work. It was um, it was a full on six days a week commitment and I just had no free time. Hmm. Um, I dropped off the GSPS radar for a few years just at that point. Um, but yeah, he came the he invited. I certainly I, I accepted. Um, Bill was there um, and also various other movers and shakers around the society at the time. Um, Bob, the guy with Bob Bray was chair, oh, yeah. chairman of the society then. And we tried to introduce each one of us to Spike when we were in the room. He said, what are you groveling for, you idiots? Stop it. Stop this. At <laughs> you know? What are you doing this for? Um, so he didn't want to stand on ceremony at all. He just wanted to relax and be friendly with 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 the, with the group. Um, and again, it was a nice meal and a nice evening, and reminiscences shared over food and a couple of glasses of wine. Couldn't have asked for anything nicer. It, it, it kind of gives it gives the lie to the because because you know there's this image of Spike always being a little bit resentful or bitter about being only remembered for the goon show you know yes. he he would often in later years he'd say that sort of thing but he was obviously very very happy to talk to people about it yes i think so um it was always um, a, a golden memory for him through mm. through his life but it depends on what else he was trying to do at the time i think mm. um and this was what the 80s he was in mm. full fettle good health he had lots of years left to devote to other projects and tr things he was trying to do. Um, and then, yes, I think the passage of time might lead him to reflect and thinking, well, nobody's asking me about Q. They only keep on asking me about this bloody goon show. So you, maybe you would start getting that surfacing. But you talk about Spike and you scroll on ahead a few more years where um, another lady called Maxine Venton, uh, she took on organizing the, the um, um, society in the mid 90s around about the time of the Freds she tried to she tried to do some she wanted to do something low-key which very similar in a sense to what Tina had done many years before but this time invited spike out for a meal um, and by that time he was living in Sussex he was a lot older I think it was yeah. to celebrate his 80th birthday um, yeah it would have been his 80th birthday. And I said, we'd like to take you out for a meal, Spike. How would you like to go to your favourite local Indian? And I don't suppose the two of the things together were something that he could he could refuse. And he said, yes. <laughs> yeah. And Maxine asked if I would go along. And I said, are you sure? Because I've already been out for a meal with Spike once. Aren't there other people? But she was quite, I don't know, I want you to be there. So, mm -hmm. okay, fair enough. I'll, <laughs> I'll come along and eat a curry. Yep, yeah, fine. Um, and of course, she plonked me next down, sat next to Spike, didn't she? Um, so, ha, ha, sitting next to a volcano. Um, <laughs> you think, what's going to happen here? Um, and I, I blew my chance at that point because one of the, the openers that Spike asked is, so, so you produce the newsletter then, do you? Gulp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you say to that? Um, and before I was out, I wasn't in my stride 
even try to think about what it would say. He says, uh, yes, I'm afraid that's me, sir. Spike says, well, don't apologize for it, says he. <laughs> so backhanded compliment. I suppose he must have enjoyed getting the newsletters as as put into A5 format when we were really on a roll then. Mm-hmm. And then the, com- the conversation switched off to other subjects like rugby and other stuff like that. Um, but again, he was quite happy to be be with the group. I think Ted Kendall was there. In fact, I'm certain Ted Kendall was there, the guy who oh, did the restored okay. goon shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. he was able to talk. He was able to tell Spike about what it would have been like trying to pull the things back together again. And so Very the goon show yeah. uh, was in the conversation. Sort of because we are, you could then have the line. So, well, we are putting the goon shows back together again. We are saving the goon shows as you originally wrote them for broadcast and how you recorded them. Mm. So, there was a lot of appreciation about that too. That would be apart from the show, the weekend called Fred, of course, itself. That would be those were the occasions I met Spike. Harry came to a weekend called Fred in 1995. Having got the newsletter up uh, to a, a, a great standard in the 90s, this idea of doing a national convention came round again. Now, Mike had done this already. It was one of the first things that he achieved. They had a, a, a residential weekend, which was quite a big prospect, although it was in one of the little, little bed and breakfast places of which there were zillions around Ramsgate, Thanet, that part of Kent. There were, uh-huh. you, know, you know, beaches and tourism. Yeah. A big thing so there was loads of spaces where you could cut a deal and that's when mike got a producer peter eaton to come down and speak and he sat down there and chatted with him about the goon show for a good couple of hours most of which was tape recorded and much later transcribed and put into the newsletter so everybody could hear so that but that yeah, was a, I've, I've i've heard yeah. that interview yeah it's very so, good and so they 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 did that again um a couple of years later, um, I managed to get down to that particular one. Again, same principle, bed and breakfast, just come along and win. And I think they invited a couple of people, but no celebrities came along. So it was a little bit lower key. It was just the guys getting together and, and enjoying their stuff. But after that, because it proved difficult to succeed in getting people, speakers to come with a significant link, um, the idea sort of fell by the wayside. It's sort of too challenging, no guarantee mm. of success. You know, you promise something, people come along, and then nobody's there. It's a disappointment. So nothing happened for a long time until, like I say, around about 1994, we started flying the kite again. Well, surely now things have changed quite a bit in terms of how we have, the resources we've got in terms of, what the society had collected together, um, how many people we know we've got, and again, we're a bit more experienced. Surely we could make a go of this. And we set up a weekend called Fred, based, you know, mimicking the title, a show called Fred from the 1950s, mm-hmm. and um, got this up and going. And you had to plan it with plan A and plan B in mind. Plan B would be, what kind of weekend will this be if nobody comes? I don't mean participants, I mean um, celebrities. Yeah. So the structure was, okay, we'll have this, we'll have a a goon game show, the quest for Queen Victoria's bedpan, a a team panel show, so people can pit their goon knowledge um, against the question to advance 
their team to find the bedpan. Okay. Uh, there was a bit, literally, there's a game board. It was about eight feet by eight foot with, <laughs> with giant counters because no technology, you see, there's no digital projection or anything. So you had to make a game board. Yeah, yeah. Physically did it. You had to have something there. It was tactile, visible. Um, so there was that. There was the uh, Webster Smog Pool concert party. Oh, uh, very good. Yeah, we had various people who come along, stand-up, performers, comics. There have been all these turns in all of the regional meetings that we've been able to see where that was really funny, that worked really well. That's a talent. Surely if you just snip those bits out and put them together, you've got something which will uh, hold people's attention and entertain if you've got nothing else. So bits and pieces like that. Films, of course, that were considered rare. Um I'd just been over to visit Max Geldray um, in California because there'd been this big story erupt in the news about Peter Sellers' uh, film and recording possessions um, becoming available for... um, were being dealt with by the executors of his estate. They'd been in stasis Mm -hmm. for some time and now they were deciding what to do with them. And there was a lot of Nothing had been decided yet, but we knew the British Film Institute was also interested in this kind of stuff. Um, and, of course, you're never going to have an argument with something as august as the British Film Institute. But the only problem with it is that if something goes in there, it rarely comes out again. Uh, it's perfectly preserved for nobody in particular because you don't get to see the stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's very difficult to access it, and certainly in terms of having a copy which is the most the most germane point almost next to impossible um you've you, you're right up then against the issues of copyrights infringement and mm. uh, entitlement according to the proprietors who hold of the copyright holding so once it was in the bfi forget it however this was the game just before the bfi were formally interested so there was a little bit of a race on to try and get there to talk to Iris Frederick, uh, Peter Sellers' mother-in-law, and to convince that we we, were, we might be considered uh, genuine, sufficiently genuine to possibly possibly have a copy of this stuff because we never heard it before. That that was all happening beforehand. We were only partly successful. A guy called Barry Hill from the Old Time Radio Collectors Association. Oh yes, mm-hmm. right. He I've was heard in about this. Yeah, mm. he was based in America, uh, whereas I was based in London, working as a teacher and unable to drop everything to jump on a plane. Um, even though I had from uh, access, um, I could have uh, somebody would vouch for me as a bona fide person to deal with. Mm. Um, so I passed the information on to Barry. Uh, got Barry. Uh, affirmed by this guy john p hamilton and he went across there but he didn't know which were the most crucial things that we were interested in because his field of interest is everything okay which which makes it a bit difficult to specialize and focus yeah um so all he could do was to the best that he could and he visually he told me that he actually saw peter sellers films not projected, but the spools and the, the cases that contained them Yeah. Uh, when he was there, yeah. but didn't know or what I could do with them. 
by the time I could get there in the summer holidays, the uh, curator of the British Film Institute, Clyde Jeeverson, had been there and the films were gone. They went into the BFI. So nice. all we were able to retrieve was uh, some audio recordings, the discs that um, Iris entrusted to Barry. And yeah. then Barry released copies of those to us once he uh, transferred them from disc to tape. Uh, and that's and whilst we were there, obviously, because Iris Frederick was in, also lived in California. We went and visited Max Gelder at the same time. Hadn't talked to Max and interviewed him um, brief, fairly briefly, it has to be said, because he's, he's a shy guy. And mm. again, he's not quite sure what to ask Max. Um <laughs> And then brought that back, and that screened at the um, weekend called Fred. So we had all of those, we had all of that stuff from all of the, for all of those different reasons that we could actually share as Plan B. And in the event, of course, Plan A was Harry did turn up. What I didn't know was that um, the reporter from the BBC who came along, Roy Bainton. Uh, who was briefed to cover this whole weekend because, again, we were able to fling publicity out in various directions, so they got wind of it at Radio 4. They commissioned him to come along and get a, put, a, put together a report to be broadcast on Radio 4. Mm-hmm. He um, obviously decided, that whilst sympathetic, he also had this idea, well, it's, it's good, this is going to be much better if there's a goon there. And right. And he put in a word with Harry to try and encourage him to come along and make an appearance. I think he knew that Harry would come, but he wouldn't let on that he knew because I think mm. why he wanted the responses of people to be genuine when mm. Harry appeared, which, well, I suppose I could have kept it under my hat, but we didn't, we didn't know that. So it just played out that, oh, he's made it, whoopee. <laughs> um, got, when he reported this in The Guardian he wrote an article about it more recently and skewed it slightly so that uh, Harry maybe was a bit, little bit leery about coming along uh, they're all barking mad he was, he, was, he was quite amazed by the response because I was waiting with Harry we brought him into the back of the convention hall that we part of the hotel that we were using it was an entirely separate zone of the place so he had a back door in. Um, yep. Dennis Main Wilson was there as a producer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, he was f- with uh, this guy, John P. Hamilton. They were both happy, happily talking about radio in the early 50s. And he was talking about working with uh, Tony Hancock and a couple of other people that he was doing. Because his, his career is very broad in radio, as you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, the hotel let us in the back before we were in view with everybody. And Dennis Main Wilson didn't stop talking. We were stuck behind this curtain uh, the, at the back just to come in. And he never stopped. He, I don't know how he managed to breathe. The guy was just a <laughs> continual sentence, which went on for about 10 pages. And I'm thinking, how the hell am I going to interrupt this without feeling rude? Um, there was no natural break. And uh, in the end, he was in the middle of an anecdote, I think it was about an early goon show he was talking about. And he came to the word suddenly. And before I get into the punch, over the punchline of his story that he was telling on the stage. And I just had to, I got Harry Seacombe behind me. We've been stood there like idiots for about four minutes. And now I've got to do something. 
And I just sort of jumped through and yelled out, suddenly, folks, it's Ned of Wales. And, <laughs> uh, and the whole place erupted. Everybody stood up. It was like a, it was a standing ovation. Mary, Harry said he thought it was an attack of mass cramp. <laughs> <laughs> and he's dying, but he's within sight of the East Pole. And he's crawling along on the ice, trying to make it, trying to make it from Britain. Everything else. He ain't going to make it. He's going to die. When suddenly, upstage, there's... Suddenly... Taxi! I was in absolute dire trouble. We just, we just done the first Hancock series. We're about to do the second series. And on the Friday night before the show, Hancock disappeared. A friend of mine in the police force was coming to the show on Sunday, rang at home and said, what's the boy we're supposed to see on Sunday doing catching the last plane to Rome? Hancock had panicked on stage and disappeared. The this is right. Panic, panic. When in trouble, who do you ring? A mate, Jimmy Grafton. And on the Saturday night, we opened with this is the BBC Light program. We present Hancock Safa, Yabba Bab the Bum, starring Harry <laughs> So yeah, it could have been a little bit feeling a little bit overwhelming, but he couldn't have mistaken that it was a genuine response. People, oh, absolutely, he yeah, liked yeah. it to see him. Yeah, and remember, was uh, was was was, was, um, was Dennis a little bit put out though? <laughs> I I think he recovered very quickly. Yeah. I think he he just rolled with it and he said, uh, "This is the man who came in and saved us when Harry Harry uh, not Harry when Tony Hancock went uh, went off off um, to to the south of France with Joan Le Mazure. Mm. <laughs> stood in <laughs> stood in Hancock's half hour. So he just rolled. He just segued quite naturally into into that. It was great fun. Great. great. And um, Harry was really pleasant and, well, he was, he was very professional and pleasant when he was being interviewed. But he stuck around there for a good two or three hours. See, um, they did do autographs. He did see the the um, Goon Show shop with all the memorabilia and stuff, books that have been published that we still had there. Because you become a you become a shop of last resort. If it's very difficult to find stuff. Yeah, yeah. Be yeah. sure that you, these guys should know where there's copies or have copies that you can buy. Yeah, yeah. So there was yeah. That. And then he stood, stayed on the stage with Dennis Main Wilson and John P, and talked about the Goon Show for it must have been at least a good forty-five minutes, if not an hour, before he excused himself away. And by that point, Plan A has succeeded very well, and everybody's very happy. Very good. So, very good. So that was that was a really good occasion, and I think it was that. Exp- I mean, he may have felt a little bit overwhelmed, but he wasn't overwhelmed enough to not come back in 1997. Because some sure. of Weekend called Fred, um, Spike and Harry were there. Um, and I think it was Harry, I suspect Harry encouraged Spike to come along, which was a really good idea. Um <laughs> 
We survived quite a lot in 1997, really. Um, so, well, nothing breeds success like having had success. So you think, well, that worked. We got away with that one. Let's try again in 1997. Uh, so Son of Weekend Called Fred was born. That By that time, Dennis Moon Wilson knew we were good guys and trusted us. And he's, the material that he had required for his own program researchers, once he'd ended up, once he'd finished with it, he sent it on to us. Um, I got these videotapes in the post. Uh, right. A show called Fred, episode five. I said, what? Where did this come from? <laughs> and um, the researchers had obviously said to Dennis, well, what do we do with this now? Um, he said, well, send it down to GSPS and gave them my address. So we were getting stuff together. We were able to screen for everybody at the Sun, Sun of Weekend called Fred, uh, a complete show called Fred, which is a big, a big coup. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We had De John P. Hamilton there again. He brought along Marjorie Sullivan, who was the PA on all of the Freds and the Idiot Weeklies. Mm -hmm. uh, so she was right in the thick of the production of every single episode. And she could speak from personal experience. So we got a lot of stuff about the Freds that time, starting it off with a complete episode. So it was a, it was, it was a brilliant evening of good stuff. Um, the next day, Ted Kendall, we invited, I, I invited him to come along and talk about restoring the shows. So we got that as well. And we got Spike and Harry on the evening. It's a good job Harry was there because we almost didn't get Spike there. Um, one thing that was a, pro was a problem was that the, the problem was getting Spike to the venue. We, we offered, we arranged to have, um, a, we, we promised a driver to go and collect him. Uh, oh, I've, I know the story because Richard Usher has been on this show. And I think, is this the story about an American Idiot. driving spike uh, uh, the idiot yes um these two guys came over from america for the first weekend called fred and didn't exactly steal the show but they were actually very funny very tall very lanky very expressive very american goonish ott and they fitted in perfectly <laughs> yeah um it was just it was just another flavor especially when it came to the batter pudding hurling competition on the Sunday morning. It was, it was you, 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 they, were, they, were, they were brilliant. Um, one of these guys came back in 97 and somehow got wind of the fact that they were, GSPS were organising a driver to collect Spike and was absolutely desperate to be the driver. Now, I didn't hear anything about this because... I left all the celebrity stuff to Maxine uh, whilst I was concentrating on the nuts and bolts because yeah. there was plenty enough to do there and I didn't want to hog everything to myself. That wouldn't have been right and fair. It's just, but it makes much more sense to do it as a team. Um, and I, everybody gets more out of it that way uh, hmm. as an experience. Uh, so I left all that side of it with Maxine. He, this guy was desperate to be the driver and is going on and on and on and on about it. 
Uh, Maxine never mentioned it to me once that this was a problem. Otherwise, I would have said, what, an American? They don't even drive on the right, same side of the road. Are you crazy? <laughs> He's only been here for how many, he won't know anything about it. But somehow he managed to wangle it. I think Maxine went with him to pick up Spike. And then they were making their way back to Brighton for the event. But this guy was so overawed by having Spike there, he couldn't help himself from burbling or gabbling about things, trying to tell Spike jokes. I mean, I can't think of anything worse that you actually try and do to Spike than try and entertain him. That's not the point. Um, And even after a couple of times, he said, uh, I saw the... I saw that punchline coming a mile off. Please don't try to do that. Uh, he didn't take the hint. <laughs> um, and, of course, he was. Spike would be getting on edge with this, but put the driver on edge. The driver then forgot how to drive on the correct side of the road for the UK and took a roundabout completely the wrong way. <laughs> Which led to a spike. Led would have said led to a laundry problem or two. Yeah, and some choice words. Yes, yes, that's right. So, yeah. obviously, but because there were quiet roads and because of the time in the day it was, there weren't. There was no major incident on the way. Thank goodness. But by the time he actually reached the hotel, Spike was in a foul mood. Absolutely mm. foul mood. Um. And Maxine gave me a little bit of a warning about this. We had also got to manage to get hold of Harry. So I grabbed Bill. I also grabbed a big friend of mine called Mike Barfield, who was about the six foot eight giant, very affable, amiable, shambling hulk of a guy. Mm-hmm. And um, said, Mike, you stay with Spike in here. Don't let anybody near him. Don't let anybody bother him. Just look after him until I get back. And um, Mike chatted with him about rugby and a couple of other things um, to try and take his mind off things. While we went down to the front to get Harry. Went, Hello, Lance. How are you doing? I said, Harry, we've got a we've got a bit of a problem here. <laughs> and explained the situation. Don't worry, lad. Leave him to me. <laughs> uh, and um, we went took into the room. I said, oh, Spike, how are you doing? And started to talk him around so oh, look at these photographs over here oh what are these people over here oh look he's dead yeah he's dead yes, <laughs> he ought to be dead said spike <laughs> things, like, things like that and gradually uh work with spike round and down and calm because of course he knows him so very well now some of them are every every generation has its own throws up his own cover. Rory Brown, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please please get on John. with it. Really. John Fortune and John Burst. Yes, yes. Reeves and Mortimer, they're funny lads. I just want to quickly mention about my small involvement with the GSPS, just to put it on record. Well, I remember the cartoons, Tyler, and they are much appreciated. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> so, I well, I, I um, joined the GSPS, it would have been 1991. Right. When I was living in Belfast. And 
interestingly, I had some correspondence with Mike Coveney. All right. Um, I found a, a series of letters. I was back home in New Zealand earlier this year, and I found um, I found about four letters from Mike from around ninety one, ninety two. Right. And it was amazing because there's, you know, typewritten and handwritten letters, which you think, you know, he took the time to write to me. God yeah. knows how many letters he was writing to other people within yeah. the, the GSPS. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to, I'm not going to read the whole letter, but there's one letter here that he sent. It was just before Christmas 1991. And he, he apologizes. I mean, I can't remember the letter I sent him, but he refers to things that I've said in that letter that I've got no recollection about whatsoever. But he says, um, I, I have a letter from you in front of me dated 24th of September, and I'm ashamed um, it's taken this long to, to reply. And he says, um, uh, if you have 125 shows on tape, that's pretty good. I'm not sure what the total available now is. The last time I checked, it was about 155. Um, and then he, he goes on to talk about a story about Spike in a restaurant being a bit difficult. Um, uh, he said, I'd like... Yes, I would like to do a bit on Wallace Greenslade, although I have not much to go on so far. So I must have suggested doing an article about Wallace or something. Yeah. Uh, and then he says, the drawings you did for Marie Celeste should appear in the next newsletter. There was a, a, a written commentary, wasn't there, for the... Yes. Uh, the, what's it called? The Mystery of the Marie Celeste? Yeah, that was solved. the one. That was the one, yeah. yes. And, and I know I did a, a few pictures over the course of 91, 92 yeah, they were for the great. newsletter. Um, and he, he asks for more and then he <laughs> the says, swine. <laughs> yeah. and, and then he says, which kind of ties into what you said right at the beginning. He says, the early newsletters were duplicated in my loft, freezing in winter and baking in summer. I bear the scars. My children used to be roped in to sort the sheets and address the envelopes, some 600 to 700 all by hand. They were the days I tell you. Mm. Uh, and then he, he, goes on to talk about uh, other stuff and then it, right at the end he says back in the summer i had the pleasure of meeting mrs eaton who lives at rye as the spike um and he said i sent her a tape of peter's talking at a gsps meeting in the 70s which she really liked peter was a real gentleman very charming and was helpful to the society in the early days so anyway i just wanted to mention that because um it, you know for such a busy man certainly in those days for him to take the time to write to me you know, um, it's not like you can sort of cut and paste. No, <laughs> like no, you do these days. No, that's right. That's right. Um, but I, 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 yeah, I was a member. I was not an active member apart from obviously contributing artwork. Um, in fact, I know in another letter that Mike wrote to me, he mentions um, uh, Tim Leatherbarrow. Yes. Who's um, who's been very big in terms of uh, contributing artwork over the years, hasn't he? Yes, he has. He's. I, I find it very difficult to stump Tim Leatherborough. I would ask him uh, for a copy of this, and he would do it, a drawing of that, and he would do it. Need some cartoons for the, the, the bedpan. He did all of them. Uh, I don't know when he slept. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I I used to get cassettes. I used to send off. I, can't, I think it was a fiver, and I'd get, by return, I'd get a few cassettes that I could dub. Yeah. Um, and it was Mark Cousins that was running the tape archive, I believe, at that time. Yes. Uh, Early 90s? Spotty Spool's Naughty Tape page. Yes. Uh, that, was, that was the one. Yes, he ran, yeah. they ran that for quite some time. Yeah. 
Um, and I got so many rarities, you know, like warm-up routines and things like that. I was, I was absolutely blown away, you know, for 1991. It never occurred to me that such things would still exist. I, I then, after about 92, 93, I, my membership lapsed. And it's only been in the last, since I started this podcast, actually, that I've uh, re-engaged and, um, and a fully paid-up member. Yes. Um, so, and Chris, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more to talk about, but we are constrained by time can you name your most sort of thrilling moment from the gsps years or or biggest frustration or regret my i i really i was i was really chuffed to be able to bring back to the, the big occasion to gsps uh mm. that was that was, mm. there was de- that was definitely a team effort uh, George would have the money and another guy would do all the bookings and I'd have the ideas and some people would um, help with the logistics. It was great to putting together Son of Fred because people come, is there anything we can do to help? Which is the wonderful question for the organisers. So yes, all these posters, stick them up around all the walls that we possibly you possibly can. I'd taken photocopies of every single photograph that George Brown had of the goons individually or together, some of them mm. quite rare, some of them otherwise, um, on the basis that if this is what the society is about preserving and we've been successful, there's not much point of it's hiding in somebody's wardrobe in the bedroom in the top of the house. Mm. Get something out there so people can see what we've been successful at preserving. And there were lots of people who bought into, into this to make events like that a huge success. There was great grandson of Fred in 2003, of course, but by that time in the 2000s, I wasn't in the country anymore. I was work- I've been working abroad for 12 years, mm. so I couldn't actively interact. <laughs> so I missed the loss of Harry and Spike, and of course the steam count. Mm-hmm. That all that all happened uh, subsequently. I wish that it had been easier to organise the transition away from me. Um, at the end, which is perhaps an odd thing to say, because I think things got things got a little bit more tricky at the end of the night. No, not at the, the very beginning of the 2000s. We lost George Brown for a start, which is a real shame, because mm. um, he was a, such a huge collector of everything. Mm. Um, and I believe that everything that he had collected was transferred on but I couldn't physically help with that because I was in the process of moving myself prior to going to work abroad. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I could have said, well, we, George would have wanted the society to have everything. Um, what is everything? What counts as everything? Bring it over here and we'll, we'll, we'll check it through. Because I've been a, proved to be a fairly safe pair of hands with stuff for Peter Sellers' estate. Yes, uh, and there's photographs, courtesy of the Peter Zellers estate, copyrighted on the newsletters from around about that time, just to prove it. But um, I wish I could have. Been, it was impossible for me to help with that, because I was getting ready to fly to Singapore. Right. So I had, to, yeah. I had to leave all that kind of stuff to everybody else, um, and that's a complicated business. I wish I could have helped with that a bit more. And as a preservation society, the challenge now is having been successful what do you do with it if you've preserved stuff where does it go 
Um, otherwise, like I say, it just ends up in wardrobes and bedrooms, which is not really what we were about. Pre- being a Goonshaw Preservation Society at the very start was about finding the recordings because they were, they were dispersed or in the vaults of the BBC. That's been achieved. There's a, bit, a, lot, a lot of Spike's cues and, and his programmes and interviews, and they've been achieved. What do you do with it next? How do you make it available to people that are going to value it? Or the generation that remembers Spike Milligan um, and has discovered his humour whilst they're still here to enjoy it. That is a quandary that hasn't been resolved yet, and the society is trying to resolve it now. But it's still yeah. a, it's still a work in progress. And um, yeah, so the society has evolved, obviously, as any society of its size would yes. over the course of 50 years. Yes. Um, and there's been much heralded new website in the yep. last 12 months. Yep, um, yep, Brilliant. Largely spearheaded by, by Duncan Gray. Yes, indeed. Um, um, so kudos to, to Duncan. And uh, that is available for people to check out. It's goonshow.org. Um, and also on that, obviously, you know, for anyone who is not already a member, uh, it's very reasonable. I mean, it's not it's not twenty five p anymore, no, or, no. Even, or even ten p, um, but it's very reasonable yearly subscription, uh, and and that gives you uh, four copies of Goon Show News every year, mm-hmm. which is a love. I mean, the magazine has come on from a oh yes. from a piece of A four photocopied yeah. or photostated to a, a lovely glossy full color. A5 size magazine. I'm not jealous of Peter Embling at all and his bells and whistles and the toys. And his, <laughs> really, I'm not. He's got, he's been on at me to, he's been on at me to, to um, provide content. And I've actually submitted for the next issue some photocopies I made of uh, New Zealand Listener, which Ooh. is like the New Zealand equivalent of the Radio Times. New Zealand Listener articles and letters about the Goon Show from the 1950s when it, Turned up on Radio New Zealand for the oh, first time. Good stuff. Uh, th- th- those will be included, I believe, in the next issue. But yeah, if you if you subscribe to the, or if you join the Goon Show Preservation Society, you also get access for a small fee um, to the Encyclopedia Goonicus, which again we've talked about many times on this show. It's you know brilliant for someone like me. It's got everything you could want about. To, to do with the goon show from the actual shows to interviews to uh video content uh there's all the uh, gsps newsletters going back to number number one it's it's difficult to try and encapsulate it all in a couple of sentences but um and and, and yeah the, the gsps is going from strength to strength and i think that there's, there doesn't seem to be any sort of abatement in interest for the goons, this podcast has has been pretty successful, more successful than I imagined it would be when I started it, and just yeah. just in terms of people yeah. showing an interest in the goons, in you know, in the goons itself, and also Spike and and particularly Peter individually. Yes. So there's still you know these guys are still being remembered and talked about, and obviously I think that's a very good thing. Yes, indeed, uh, indeed. And and Chris, I want to thank you so much for you know taking the time to, to come and talk to me today and. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Um, I guess my last question would be, because I wanted to ask it right at the beginning when you said about the fact that you were staging, you and your friends were were sort of restaging these goon shows, having never heard the goon show, just reading the scripts. What was the first goon show episode you ever heard? 
Oh, I think it was a Spanish suitcase. Ah, right. Which uh, has is one of those with quite a long bit of not not a lot of structure to it, and a good a develop good developing plot. So you, you don't yes. get the you don't get the latter flights of fancy that don't go anywhere. It's u- it's usually quite tightly disciplined. But um, yes. that's a fun one. I've come back to that two or three times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Played that to my sons. We're now into the generation of the dad inflicting it on his on his son. So I what I didn't have myself. I'm I'm making sure they don't miss out. What do they think? Uh, well, they both come into my their mum saying, "Oh, and she says, "Oh no." <laughs> so the mark of success. Very good, very good. Chris, listen, it's been a blast. Thank thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. It's been great talking to you. eight months and uh, Chris was a tower of strength thank you CJ what a pal he's been tower of strength a pillar of the community and Mike wearing on, on the emails yes and and uh, thank you to Blue Bottle for entertaining us thank you all for coming along in August I was having ooh, what 50 fits a day we've only got 35 people Chris what are we gonna do what are we gonna do Milligan's going to turn up to 30 people <clears throat> and then they all came in in October they checks so thank you all very much for coming along I hope you've had a wonderful time because we haven't have we? Uh, should have seen me at four this morning. <laughs> I was uh, semi-conscious. Um, Dindins is served. For those that want it. Yes. The rest of you, the rest of you now get out! <laughs>